Hey guys, it's Jerry from Hillbilly Horror Stories. And if you're like me, and I know you are, you listen to several paranormal podcasts. I can't seem to get enough. But one podcast is at the top of my list. Jim Harold's Campfire. Jim Harold's Campfire is about 90 minutes each week of real stories from people just like you and me. Just ordinary people. And yes, I do mean like me because I had the honor of actually being on Jim Harold's Campfire a few years ago. It's a fantastic show, but don't just take my word for it. Dina Geek said, Jim Harold's Campfire is perhaps the best tool we have currently in existence to hear real-life scary stories from other human beings since the actual campfire was invented. I mean, longevity obviously tells you what a success a show is. And did you know that Jim got into the podcasting, especially the paranormal podcasting, back in the days where it was just getting started? Most people didn't even know what a podcast was. So you would probably find it amazing to know that Jim Harold's Campfire is getting ready to celebrate its 13th anniversary. My goodness, how good does a show have to be to last for 13 years? They say that in most situations, less is more. And that's what you get with Jim Harold's Campfire. The concept's pretty simple. Jim just talks to regular folks about strange stuff that happened to him about 90 minutes a week. Ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, head scratchers, you name it, it's all there. They're not all scary, though. I mean, there's stories about serial killer Ted Bundy or the young man who encountered an eight-legged demon. But there's also heartwarming stories. The story I actually got to share was about how my mother sent two bikers to tell me that she was okay in the afterlife. So you get a little bit of everything. So tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Hillbilly Horror Stories. Feel free to leave them a five-star review after you've listened to a couple of episodes. You're going to want to. And make sure you tell them that you heard about them on Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now enjoy this extra long episode of Jim Harold's Campfire. It's a best of from 2021. Some of our most memorable and chilling stories from 2021 on the Campfire tonight. Welcome to our gathering tonight. Here we share stories of ordinary people who have experienced extraordinary things. Sit back, relax, and warm yourself by Jim Harold's Campfire. Welcome to the Campfire and Happy New Year, everybody. And I hope that you have a fantastic New Year and an even better 2022. And welcome to the show and uh, good to our word. We have not missed a show this holiday season. Quite honestly, I recorded this a little bit before New Year, so we could take some time off with the family. But uh, Campfire is still here. And tonight we are going to have a show clocking in at over two hours featuring some of our best stories of 2021. Now, I've got to say, it's not every great story that we had in 2021. I know we probably missed some of your favorites, but we've packed in, again, over two hours of content for you. I hope you enjoy it, and thank you for joining us. If you are new here, what we do is we share true stories of the supernatural. Could be ghosts, could be cryptid creatures, UFOs, or my favorite, head scratchers, but whatever they are, 
They are fascinating, and welcome to our electronic campfire. If you like what we do, please make sure that you follow or subscribe for free on the podcast app of your choice. Also, a rate and review would be most appreciated, too, and be sure to tell a friend. And finally, one other thought. You know, if you're listening to this show and say, man, I love all these great stories. I wish I could get access to the whole Plus Club archive. Make sure to check out jimheraldplus.com. Click on the banner at the top of the page and we'll have a cool sale for you there. And you can get access to the campfire going all the way back to 2009 and get, well, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories. Actually, thousands of stories. <laughs> so check it out, jimheraldplus.com. Click on the banner. And with that, we will get on to some of our favorite stories from 2021. Enjoy. Next up on the show is William from Montana and his sister Genevieve, who was a caller a while back on the show, told her, told him about the show. So we appreciate that, Genevieve. And William, we're so glad to have you. And you're going to tell us a story about, wow, this is a big story, 65 million years of fate. Looking forward to it. Thank you for joining us and tell us what happened. Hi, Jim. I appreciate your time. Yeah, this story is a little out of the realm of what I normally hear on your show because it's not necessarily um, spooky or supernatural, but it is an event in my life that really kind of solidified um, my belief that there is a not necessarily a larger power in the universe, universe, but that you know things do definitely work in mysterious ways. Um, mm-hmm. The story has some sensitive information in it, so I, I am going to leave out a couple of details just to protect people's privacy. Sure. But it all starts about, I mean, over a decade ago at this point, um, over outside of a small town in eastern Montana. And at that point in time, I was doing some volunteer work in the summer with a nonprofit paleontological organization. Um, For anyone that might not know, paleontologists uh, study extinct life forms. And we were, this particular crew, we were working in the Hell Creek formation of eastern Montana, uh, working in late Cretaceous sediment. So that's about 65 million year old sediment, um, between 65, 67 million years. And this particular group had gotten in touch with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And we had a child come from overseas whose wish, um, he had terminal cancer, and his wish was to come to a real dinosaur dig. And that was something that he had always wanted to do. So his parents flew out with him. And we met him, drove him out to our base camp. And this is about as remote of a location as you can get in the United States. Just absolutely beautiful, but incredibly isolated location. So it was definitely a challenge from the get-go. He was um, primarily using a wheelchair at that point. So getting him around this terrain, we knew was going to be a very difficult challenge. 
but we had put in a lot of time before he came out um, trying to make our current dig site as accessible as possible. We were working on a Triceratops skeleton at that time. Um, they were the ones with the big frill, the three horns. You always see them fighting T-Rex and Paleo art. <laughs> and so they were super excited about that. That was one of his favorite dinosaurs. And we were just, you know, ecstatic at the opportunity to, you know, try and try and give this child something very memorable with his family. So they come out. And they were going to be with us for about a week and a half, if I remember correctly. Um, like I said, this was this was quite a bit of time ago, so some of the details are a little fuzzy. But let's just say they were going to be with us for about a week and a half. And immediately, as soon as they get there the next day, it is just torrential downpour. And anyone who's familiar with dirt roads in the western states uh, specifically montana the topsoil is made of what's called bentonite and it's a a shrink swell clay so when it gets wet it is it's worse than driving on ice it's like driving on ice that you also sink into sure so very little amounts of rain make the terrain basically impossible to drive over and it was a incredibly hot, dry summer. The second that boy and his family got off the plane, it rained for several days straight. And this was just very heart crushing for all of us there because we would have people come out and visit our dig sites. And, you know, things like this happen. It's, it's very unpredictable. Um, and there's a lot of logistical challenges in paleontology. But there was something very special about this particular child. Um, they had, had come all the way from Europe to, to be with us. And this was his, his wish. And there was just this sinking feeling of disappointment that, you know, we could have, they could have done anything really. And they chose to come out here with us and we weren't able to provide them with the experience that they had wanted because of the weather and you know we tried to make the best of it and um you know we would take them around the ranch and we would have little fires and play music and play board games and show them fossils that we had around our base camp and you could just tell that he was you know even though he hadn't even been to the dig site yet he was just having the time of his life and his parents were so appreciative and grateful and it was just kind of a, a very strange magical time of uncertainty you know with kind of it just right. you could feel that there was a lot riding on this experience and we were just dead set on getting this child something special and so finally the weather broke and we knew that the roads were to our normal dig site were completely impassable. They were, you know, two tracks out through the badlands. Um, we, we knew that it was going to be impossible for us to physically get this child where we wanted to take him. And so we looked at some of our maps and ended up finding 
another location that we'd been to several times before, but none of us had ever found anything. But at that point, their time with us was almost over. We were like, we got to we got to get this family out in the field no matter what, even if it's. Yeah, we we just got to do something. So we load them up in the trucks and we end up driving them to this dried up riverbed. Like I said, we'd been there a couple of times before, never found anything, never really devoted much time to it after that. It just didn't seem like it was producing fossils. And we drove him out to this riverbed and we're like, yeah, we're just going to walk up and down, see what we can find. Um, Not expecting anything really. And like I said, this child was in a wheelchair, so that made it very difficult for him to navigate the terrain. And pretty quickly, his father just picked him up out of the wheelchair, put him on his back and was hiking him through this dried up riverbed. (laughs) And eventually the father got tired of carrying the boy and just laid him down on his back on his side inside this dried up riverbed. And they were just picking through stones looking. Um, Most of paleontology is just picking up rocks and looking at them. And is it bone? Yes. Cool. Is it bone? No, throw it. You know. So we were all doing that, just kind of enjoying the beautiful sunny day. And our big, um, you know, one of our big code of ethics was, you know, we don't lie to people. So if it's a rock, we're going to tell you it's a rock, you know? Um, And, So he is picking up little pebbles and looking at them, you know, all excited. Is this a bone? No. Is this a bone? No. Is this a bone? No. And then he brushes something in the side of the riverbank and he calls over the lead paleontologist and he says, hey, what's this? Is this bone? And she bends down and looks at it and it is. Uh Uh-huh. A little thing, just a little tiny something sticking out of the side of that riverbank. You know, probably about the size of your thumbnail. And so we get some picks and brush and we clean it up a little bit and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the more dirt that we're pulling away from it, the bigger it's getting. And that little boy ended up finding the very tip of the nasal horn of a complete triceratops skull how cool is that buried in that riverbank and that moment there was just this gut feeling that we all had that everything had happened for a reason and that you know it's my firm belief that 65 million years ago that dinosaur died where it did so that 65 million years later it would rain when it did so that that boy's father could carry him until he was too tired to carry him and set his dying child down on top of it for him to find and have this incredible experience and we named the dinosaur after him and we put it up in the local museum. Um, mm. The skull is still on display in there. And that is um, one of the stories that gets me through very hard times and really, you know, compels me to have faith in 
the malevolence of existence. And well, uh, maybe I said that wrong. Benevolence <laughs> of I, when you said that, wait, 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 unless yeah, I have my synonyms go. mixed up and my anonyms, <laughs> and uh, you're like thinking about the benevolence of existence. Yes, it's one of those stories that you know is just everything lined up so perfectly for it to just utterly convince me that there was no way that that was a random event. And um, yeah, that's that's something that I will remember till the day I die. I love that story. I love that story. And again, I say this time and time again, I'll say it yet again. Well, people think that when you talk about the supernatural or the kind of things that we talk about, fate and those things is always bad and always negative and always darker energy and always, you know, we've had cases recently, we talked about harbingers of doom. And I think that scary, spooky stuff does happen. But I also think there's the other side where some way, someone Something somewhere decided that bone needed to be there. So that boy, 65 million years later, yes, could pick it up and experience uh, the joy of a very unfortunately short lifetime. And one other thing we want to get in before we leave Will here. Will says, Genevieve, you need to call in and tell your three little pig story. And I'm intrigued. So please do sign up and tell that story. And Genevieve, thank you. And thank you, Will. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Next up on the campfire, Samantha from Kentucky. We're so glad to have her. She's been listening for about a year and she's going to tell us about a family home and the strangeness that ensued. Samantha, welcome and tell us your story. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on. So the story I reached out about today actually happened at my grandmother's house, early 2000s, maybe about 2001 or two. I was a little girl. And her house had always been kind of odd. I think almost everyone who spent any time there have had their own experiences, but I had never really had one myself until then. So my grandma was, she loved to play jokes and she had costumes and she liked to kind of trick me. She would go put her costumes on and, you know, come out and and try to scare me or tease me when I was little. And that's probably why I am into paranormal things now. But I was there one day and I walked out of what was my bedroom and it was a kind of a ranch style home. So it was just straight down the hall. You could see through the kitchen and there was a door that led into the garage. It had a window and I looked up and I saw this face in the window that led out into the garage. And this face looked like the the easiest way I can describe it, it kind of looks like the red like devil emoji on iPhone keyboards. And so it was, it kind of had human features in some ways, like the skin, but it was red. But then also some animal sort of qualities. The teeth were kind of pointy and bared. Um, a lot of hair, sort of like a kind of where the wild things are kind of creature which I wasn't familiar with at the time. So I, I, don't, I don't think I cooked this up in my head. But I was delighted when I seen it because I thought my grandma had bought a new costume or a new mask that we could play with. So I'm laughing and I'm walking as fast as I can to her to ask her, you know, where did you get it from? Let me put it on. <laughs> and I'm walking toward her and it is moving. You know, I can see it breathing and sort of like, just shifting its weight a little bit in the, in the window. And so I'm walking toward it 
And as I passed by the living room, she was on the couch reading a book. My grandmother. It was not her. Oh, man. It wasn't her. I guess the joke was on you. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I was so close to the door, so close. And this, you know, this thing, I was getting right up on it. And I wasn't afraid because I thought it was her. And she was reading on the couch. And I, you know, glanced away for just a few seconds. And when I looked back, it was gone. And so I opened the door. I don't know where I got that courage at the time. I was probably like seven or eight, but I opened the door and looked out. No one. And we live on a farm kind of in the middle of nowhere. We usually don't get people walking. All We have a very long drive. We don't have people passing through. And even if someone was in there, there's nowhere to go without us seeing you leave. And so we've never been able to explain that. And, you know, I even told, I even turned around, I said, who had the mask? Who has a new mask? And, you know, of course, my grandmother's like, what are you talking about? There's no mask. There's no new red mask. That is so creepy. It was so creepy. And it just, it's stuck with me all these years. I can see that face still. So, I I mean, it sounds like that there was from what you sent over, there was a whole history of activity in that house though, no? Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and still to this day, my, my grandmother says that she experiences things, but my dad, as a young boy, when he lived there, he begged not to um, have to sleep in his room alone because he said that he could hear a woman crying in the closet. And so my grandmother has kind of, you know, she didn't have any patience for that. And she said, don't, don't make up lies. Don't tell things like that. And when they got older and moved out of the house, she spent probably her first night alone in decades. And she also heard the woman crying in the closet. Oh, man. So she had to call um, him and do some apologizing, I think. You know, that is, I mean, think about that. Seeing basically a devil figure, thinking it was some, was your grandma dressed up and then realizing, wait, grandma's over there. So what is that? Exactly. Yeah. And it was so, it sounds so stereotypical. And and I listen to a lot of things like this and I haven't really heard anyone describe a figure like that, but it was so, it's so distinct in my memory. I can remember it perfectly. And it's just kind of an odd character that I've seen that day. Was it wearing any kind of clothes? I could only see like the face and maybe like a neck because it was right up to the glass, but it wasn't a still figure. You know, as I got closer, it was breathing and sort of, you know, shifting like a person would if they were. And so it was definitely, you know, moving, blinking. And so it was just very strange. That is so creepy. <laughs> Samantha, thank you for giving me the chills. I appreciate it. We, I'm sure our listeners appreciate it too. No, seriously, what a great story. I mean, not great at the time. You don't want to exactly run into Lucifer, but uh, a fascinating story for sure. Samantha, thank you so much for being a part of the campfire. No problem. Thanks, Jim. You're listening to Jim Harold's Campfire. Mary is on the line from Austin, Texas, and we're so glad to have her. She's been listening, I think, for about a month now. Mary, you told me, and I, I you know, as I'm rapidly aging here, I forgot the uh, forgot the name. You heard about us on another podcast. What is that podcast called? Yeah. Hey, Jim. Um, so the podcast I found you on was Real Life Ghost Stories. 
hosted by Emma and Dan. Very cool. Well, Emma and Dan, thank you so much for getting the word out about the campfire and hope that we return the favor a little bit. Well, uh, nevertheless, uh, Mary sent me her story and I read it and my jaw dropped. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say no more. I don't want to ruin it. Mary, thank you so much for sharing this story with us. I was kind of like, whoa, (laughs) when I read it. So tell us, tell us what happened. It's a head scratcher. Okay. So this took place in back in about 2006, 2007. So my son at the time was probably two, two and a half, three. I can't remember exactly when, but he was at that stage, you know, where he was just starting to talk and, um, and he was at that stage, you know, where you can have adult conversations around the little kids and they don't really know what you're talking about right? So this will be good to know later on in the story. So just a little background at this time in my life, I had a corporate job. I was traveling all the time and, um, I live in Austin. So you're forever connecting through Dallas to get back home. And so I would always arrive home late at night. And so I'd have to drive home late at night. Well, um, on the way home, my guilty little pleasure was listening to coast to coast, Mm -hmm. George Norrie. And, um, so, It scared me to death because at the time I was a new mom, anything scary, anything was just, it really scared me. And I would be up at night if I listened to it, but I just was so intrigued by it. And that was the only time I had had to watch it. So this one particular night I was driving home and George was talking about reptilian people. And I had never heard of this before. Um, Of course, after that night, I Googled it and did all kinds of research. And, you know, I mean, he was presenting some pretty good, compelling evidence that, you know, they're out there. And, you know, he was claiming that there were famous people and that and politicians that were actually reptilian and that people had witnessed them changing their form and that they could shape shift and, you know, and there were eye account witnesses that were saying this. And so I was, you know, mm, taken aback a little bit. So that night didn't get much sleep, Um, went to work the next day, didn't have to travel. So that night, and this is where our story gets good. Mm -hmm. um, My husband and I, and my son at the time, um, were having dinner at the dinner table. And so he, I started telling my husband about this, what I heard from George about these reptilian people. And, and, you know, like I said, my son at this time was, you know, at that age where we could have these kind of conversations. And I didn't think he really knew what we were talking about. Yeah, He was only just a, he was like a toddler, wasn't he? He was a toddler. Like he was sitting there and, you know, I, I think he was on his little booster stool, you know, just eating his peas and carrots. And, you know, he really wasn't engaging in our conversation whatsoever. Right. So I was like, okay. So, and my husband, I have to tell you, huge, huge skeptic. Right. And so he was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is ridiculous. And, and, um, so he, he was, um, he was saying like, okay, well, if there are reptilian people and they've been here, because George was claiming they've been around, you know, for a very, very long time. Why haven't they gone ahead and taken over our world? Or why haven't they shown themselves to us? Because obviously, you know, they've been around for a while. And all of a sudden, my son, who can barely form words, he looks straight at us and says, people not ready yet. <laughs> and it stopped us in our tracks. 
and we look at them and we were like, well, what do you mean people not ready yet? And he just went back to eating and did not say another word about it. We tried to probe him later, you know, like with questions about what, what did you mean by that? Like how did, and he never acknowledged it, anything. And so I have no idea why he would say that. And it was just really, really spooky. Yeah. (laughs) I I gotta say, uh, when you emailed in the story, it's one of those stories where, oh gosh, I hope she makes it on the show because, and and I want to have everybody come on the show, but they're, Mm -hmm. they're remarkable stories that you go, oh gosh, I hope nothing goes wrong with the equipment or I hope they don't end up having an appointment (laughs) or whatever the case may be. I hope we got to get this on tape. I guess I'm dating myself, but tape anyway, (laughs) uh, digital tape. But the thing is two year old, you're talking about reptilians. Why have they not revealed themselves and out of the mouths of babes, people not ready yet. And and I got to say, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I'm we've done shows on the idea of reptilians. I personally am skeptical of it. I don't yeah. think they're lizard yeah. people running around. Exactly. But the thing I love about the campfire, even if it's something you're skeptical about, you'll hear a story and I'll make you go. Mm. And then, mm. and and then, then scratch your head. <laughs> right. And I always scratch my head. Like, why would he say that? You know, why does he, you know, and I've always believed that children are very connected when they're young sure. to other realms. Um, and, um, you know, so I don't, I don't know how he would have known to say that. And was it in his own voice? It wasn't like a people not ready. Oh, yeah, no. It was in his cute little two-year-old voice. And that's what made it even kind of cuter and scarier, actually. Yeah, it would make it scarier (laughs) if it were some guttural Satan voice. It wouldn't... Uh, Yeah, that we would have gotten some sage and a priest and all that (laughs) stuff. Um, But it's really funny because now um, anything that happens in our family that is supernatural, spooky, you know, just unexplained our catchphrases people, people not, not ready, ready yet, yet. <laughs> and and you were telling me off air that your son he's almost all grown up now and, and uh, a pretty uh, hardcore skeptic he is so uh, he's 15 now just about to turn 16 and it's really funny that he has turned into the biggest skeptic of anything uh supernatural so you know i had an energy healer out to the house there were some ghosts or spirits that are in our house. They're not malevolent or anything. And she did some energy healing, like with some magnets on him. And and then we tried to bring Sage in. He's like, get that hoogie boogie out of here. I don't believe in any of that. And he just, I mean, and it's just so funny that he would, you know, after he said that at two, three years old, that now he is just like, he's a very um, scientific kid, right? That can't be explained by science or rational explanation. He's not going to believe in it. So Neil deGrasse Tyson would be proud. <laughs> he is a big fan of, of his. Yes. Well, yeah. Mary, thank you so much for giving us an instant campfire classic. What a great story. People not ready yet. The, the title of today's show, but hopefully people are ready for the campfire. And thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for letting me tell my story.
Sylvia is on the line from California now. I got to say, she is a huge supporter of our shows. She's very much a supporter of our video efforts that we do on YouTube. Check that out at youtube.com slash Jim Harold. But she is just one of our star spooktators. Uh, we call our video viewers, uh, and, and she's certainly up there. She's a star in that regard, and we appreciate all of her support. And she has a campfire story for us. And uh, it takes uh, back to uh, kind of childhood years and looking forward to it. Sylvia, thanks so much for all of your support and thanks for being a part of the show. Tell us, uh, tell us your campfire story. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on. So my younger brother and I were visiting, um, I think it was back in August, and the subject of first childhood memories came up. So um, we took it all the way back to when he was two and I was six. We lived in this house that had a field outside the kitchen window. Now, I, I never liked that field. It just, it always gave me a bad feeling. And then one night, I honestly can't remember if it was a dream or real, but I saw an evil scarecrow with glowing red eyes in Ooh. that field. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. It was creepy. And I always just got the feeling that, you know, like I never told my mom about it, never told anybody about it because I always got that feeling like nobody's going to believe you anyway. So it just, it gave me that kind of feeling. Now, fast forward 20 years later, um, discussing first memories with my brother. Um, he said one of his first memories was getting a bath in the sink that overlooked that field mm -hmm. and he told me that he never liked that field and mm. so and I didn't say anything after he said that but I said hmm, why and he said I don't know it just gave me a weird feeling and so then I kind of paused for a second and I asked him did you ever you know see anything in that field and so he kind of pauses and kind of looks a little sheepish and he says well I don't know if it was a dream or not but I swear one night I saw an, a scarecrow with glowing red oh. eyes. <laughs> My mouth dropped. I even think I said, I think I said, shut up. You did not. <laughs> and we never discussed this. Like he was two at the time and I was six. And honestly, you know, it's not like we were talking much because he was right. so young. So I, yeah, I was well, that is creepy <laughs> to get that validation so many years later. Now, who knows what you were seeing? It could have been a ghost. It could have been a evil square. Yeah. Crow, it could have been an alien. Who knows what it was, but you both were seeing something for sure. And that's the way that yeah. your minds it's thought it looked like an evil square crow. Wow. Mm -hmm. and, it, and then I even wonder if it could have been something of a darker energy that was projecting itself in that way. Did you ever think of that? I have. I've wondered now. I go to that spot or drive by that spot quite often though. It's in my our childhood hometown and we don't live in that house anymore. But driving by a couple of weeks ago, I saw that they are building on that land. So I'm keeping my ear to the ground to see if maybe they, they find something that shouldn't be there, that has you know what I mean? Like something bad happened there. Yeah. You know how these developments have like names. It could be like evil scarecrow acres. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that would actually be really cool. <laughs> I don't think somehow that'll work for the marketing department. Probably not. I would live there, but you know, we're kind of into the 
stuff. <laughs> That's right. Me too. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Um, man, that is just amazing. So you remember seeing this evil scarecrow all your life, never told anybody about, didn't you tell your parents or anything? And no, then, uh-uh. and then your brother 20 years later says, you know, the only weird thing, you know, I saw what looked like an evil scarecrow with red eyes. Yeah. Same report. That is amazing. Wow. I was, yeah, I was shocked and he was shocked too. He's like, oh God, I don't think we should be talking about this. Do you think that, <laughs> that that's kind of helped spur your interest in the supernatural? Oh yeah. We've, both of our parents are super, well, my mom was, she passed away recently, oh, but I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you. But both of our parents were super sensitive in that way. Um, my father was, or is super superstitious. <laughs> I always laugh at him, but I get a lot of my superstitions and, and then a lot of my sensitivity from my mom. So we kind of grew up with that kind of talk, you know, floating around. So it was always fun. Oh, well, very cool indeed. Thank you for sharing that story of the evil scarecrow. Thanks so much, Sylvia, for all your support. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Follow Jim on Twitter and Instagram at the Jim Herald and join our virtual campfire Facebook group at virtualcampfiregroup.com. Now back to the campfire. Maggie is on the line from Richmond, Virginia, and I got to tell you, she sent over her story, and I'm excited about this one. I I love it. Maggie, thank you for joining us tonight. I know your mom, Cheryl, told you about the show and encouraged you to listen and call, and thank you, Cheryl, and thank you, Maggie, and, and please tell us this great story. Well, thank you for having me. So this happened in about um, the year 2003, Um, I had just moved to Richmond, Virginia with my family, my parents, and my two brothers. And this was the summer where we found something odd happening in our neighborhood. So we moved to the suburbs and became quick friends with the neighbors. And we had one friend of ours who we really attached with. She was great and around our age. Um, My older brother was about 14. I was 11. And my little brother and her were about eight. And we started to um, explore this Creek that was at the bottom of our street. And we would walk through the shallow muddy water there weekly. We got really used to just being outside that whole summer. And we spent our summer walking the same path one way down this Creek. Um, and then we would return after a couple hours of being down there. But one day my brothers and our neighbor friend walked the normal path down the Creek And imagine probably walking 20 minutes in shallow water and you come to this small clearing and it's in the neighborhood. So you don't expect anything. I don't remember this clearing really being there, but today the clearing actually had a huge old gray kind of Victorian stone house. And we had never seen it all summer. Right. It just popped up. Huh? Yeah. And so we look up and we're looking at this house. And then we realize at the edge of the creek, um, it's probably two, like a two or three foot climb up and down the creek is a little hill on the side. And there's a boy there staring at us. And he's kind of in like this gray, black Victorian era clothing. And he is wearing like high socks, black shoes. And this is like Richmond, Virginia in summer. If you've ever lived in Virginia, it's humid. And and we're thinking, what is he doing? He's just looking at us, looks as amazed as we are that we're in his area. We have been there all summer. We've never seen him. We've never seen this huge stone house behind him. It's multiple stories high. 
with like pointy tops. And um, he's standing there and he picks up this cat that's standing next to him. Like he went over to go get his cat. And we kind of just look at him and he looks scared. So we don't say anything. And we're kids. We don't know what to do. <laughs> and he turns and starts walking away. And we look around and then we see his mom at the door. It has this huge doorway to the opening of the house. It's kind of an archway with French doors. And she's staying there with her arms crossed. She's also in Victorian clothing, super dark, long dress, um, the kind that puffs out. And she has her arms crossed, looking stern at him, calling him over to come back. But we can't hear her. But he's acting like he could hear being called back. And uh, so he goes inside, but all of a sudden, it's like within five seconds, he was standing in front of us. And then we blink and he's up on the second floor balcony staring at us like he just zoomed inside somehow. Yeah. And so then we're looking at this house and it's like totally out of place. We're used to just normal suburban houses. It has like multiple pointy tops to it. And we think that is so weird. And we're afraid now because... We're into the neighborhood and there's this mom that's mad at us for being in their backyard, basically. Sure. So we leave and we come back a couple of days later and we come to the same clearing. The house is not there at all. Oh, boy. Yeah. And we're we know the path. There's one way in and one way out of the creek. You just follow it. And we look it around and the clearing is there. And we look to the side and there's a tree there now. And it has stone steps wrapped around the base of the tree. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. So yes. you, you guys, you saw into another time. It sounds like. We think so. It was just too weird. And why would stone steps be wrapped around any tree in the neighborhood? Just left there. Very uh, weird. Wow. That is wild. Now, what did your friends say about it? I mean, do they recall it in the same way that you do? Well, it's funny. We didn't talk about that for years because we just, as kids, you know, you you care about one thing and then you move on. You care about something else. So we go on our adult lives not thinking about this in the slightest. And now we're all in our late 20s and we get together for a party a couple of years ago. And we all are sitting around talking about, you know, funny um, things that happen, weird stories you can't explain. And one one of our, I think it was the neighborhood friend, she brought up, well, do y'all remember the house in the creek? And we were all shocked. We thought that was our own individual, you know, like dream. We didn't remember that actually being true because we never talked about it again. Right. So we're all telling the story and we're like, yes, that's what he was wearing. Yes, he was going to pick up a cat. And yes, his mom was mad. And then he was standing up in the second floor balcony staring at us. And then, yes, we all remember seeing the stone steps wrapped around the tree. And so I did something actually before calling in, I asked my brothers and my friend to just for like, to give yourself 60 seconds and draw the house. Like you remember before I do this call, cause I, I need confirmation. That I'm not calling sounding crazy. <laughs> and um, they all draw a sketch of the house and they're all the same. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is so wild. That is so well. Now, did you ever think of now that you're older, uh, have you ever thought about maybe going back and doing some research to see what that house was and and when it was there? That would make sense. Yeah, because there's um, 
a place called the Midlothian Mines here in town. And there's some local spots where it's definitely been developed and then things torn down in past history. And it's definitely something going on back there because the it felt when I we were looking at that kid and looking at the mom and looking at the house, it felt like it was some kind of wartime. It was dark. It was just a grim situation. You could tell there were no men around. Like that woman was left alone with her son and she was in a bad situation. So it definitely felt like we were looking at something real in that moment. Well, if you do some more research, please do let us know because I'd love to find out uh, the, the facts and figures behind that actual place. And the thing is, is that I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but as strange as it was for you, it was probably strange for the boy too. And I don't know how close you were, but he would think, you know, what are these, who are these kids in these odd clothes? You know, <laughs> what kind of clothing is that? Yeah. They you didn't know? know about basketball shorts back then. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what, what are they wearing? You know, I, I mean, you had to think that maybe in the reverse, it was kind of spooky for him. And maybe he was seeing your side of time as well, that something had temporarily opened up. That is so wild. Yes. Oh, they seemed more scared of us, really, than we were of them. We were just confused. They were actually looked terrified. Oh, man. I'll tell you, I, I really believe, Maggie, that the nature of our reality is so different than we understand that I don't doubt these things unleashed. This reminds me a little of the Roadhouse Saloon story that we've shared so many times over the years, that you're kind of out of time, you're out of space, you're not where we're supposed to be. Years ago, one of our longest time listeners, Sandy, had a story where she was walking and she kind of walked back into time for a short period of time and then she came back. And... I think these things happen because I think our reality is somehow layered or there's things we can't see or multiple dimensions or maybe maybe all the time in the world exists at the same time, but we're like on this one track and we can't see it to either side of us, uh, below us, above us, or to either side. Another example of that is we had a call a couple of years ago, I think, a young man, remember being a little boy and being very frightened because he walked into his kitchen. Is this the way I remember? He walked into his kitchen and he saw a hooded figure making a sandwich like a teenager. And he didn't understand what it was. And it scared the heck out of him. Cause he's like, I don't know who that is. And then uh, several years later, this same boy had grown up. He was a teenager. He was minding his own business. He was making a sandwich and wearing a hoodie. And he saw this little figure go through the hallway and he couldn't figure out what it was. Then it clicked. He saw himself. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll tell you, it's a strange world and we're living in it. But uh, I love to share these stories. Maggie, thank you so much. And thanks to Cheryl for telling you about the program. Thank you, Jim. Kat is on the line from the great state of Virginia. And uh, she actually found the show because she had read our books first. So if you don't know, there are five campfire books, Jim Harold's Campfire, True Ghost Stories. Look them up on Amazon. They're available in Kindle and paperback. So I hope you get to check that out if you haven't heard of them. They're a lot of fun. And what else is a lot of fun are head scratchers. As you know, I love them. And Kat's got one for us tonight. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. And tell us what happened. 
Thank you for having me. Um, well, this took place back in the early 90s. And um, I was living in Virginia and I had just turned 18 years old and I decided to move to Kentucky where my best friend lived. She also had just turned 18. So um, we got an apartment there and we were about 45 minutes outside of, well, what people call Louisville, but the locals call it Louisville. <laughs> and um, so we used to drive to this um, after hours nightclub that was about, you know, that was in the city. And um, the nightclub was, it was the 18 and over nightclub. So that's why we used to go because we could get in. Right. And so we go to this nightclub and then as we're driving back um, on the highway, the drive back home, there was like this long stretch of highway and on the highway, it was really, really dark. There was like no streetlights and there was also no on and off ramps. So you go for a very long ways, you're driving and it's really, really dark. And at this time we're driving back and it's about 2.33 in the morning and there's like no other cars around. And as we're driving, I'm kind of approaching the end of this long stretch of dark highway. And you could see ahead, I could see ahead of me a off-ramp and it was the first off-ramp for a long time. So it's lit up. So you could really see it from ways away. As we're approaching this off-ramp, I noticed this black car just sitting it's parked there, like in the off-ramp. And it was like a 1970s, like Monte Carlo type car. And as we see this car, it slowly backs up, stops, goes forward, stops, backs huh. up, stops. Yeah. And we're, we're trying to figure out what, what is this guy doing? Is he, is, has he been drinking? What's going on? You know, and my friend and I were kind of puzzled. So we're watching this car do this. And then we both took our eyes off of it for a minute. I guess we were looking at each other talking. And when we look back and at this time we're, you know, passing that off ramp, we noticed the car was gone, just completely vanished. It was just not there anymore. And we could see in that off ramp for a ways. So there's no way that the car could have just drove off without us seeing it. And it, we both were just shocked. Like what happened? Where did this car go? And, you know, so we just kind of, kind of chalked it up like maybe you know we're just we're tired it's two three in the morning you know maybe we're just seeing things so we you know we go home that night um exactly one week later we go back to the same nightclub and again we're hanging out and and I, just for reference we haven't been drinking or anything like that um so the very next week we're driving back from the nightclub and again we approach the same stretch of highway and except this time, I'm approaching the very beginning of it. And as I'm driving, I could see no other cars on the road other than one car that was like way, way up ahead of me. And I could see the two little red taillights and it was way, way up there. And in my rearview mirror, all I could see was just black. It was pitch black. It was so dark. And which, you know, kind of made me nervous because this is back in the 90s before cell phones. So if we break down, especially in my... 1980 Dodge Colt, you know, we're kind of, right. kind of in a predicament. So anyway, we're driving and all of a sudden out of nowhere, there's these bright lights on my tail. Oh boy. And I mean, so bright that it hurt my eyes. It was this car with suddenly inches from my bumper and had its brights on. And I'm like, Whoa, you know, I would have seen the car approach you know, from way back because it was so dark out there. 
And, but, but I didn't. So I don't know where this car came from, but it was suddenly there. So I quickly just kind of get in the left lane to try to get out of its way. And when I get in the left lane, the car gets in the left lane with me. So I go mm. back into the right lane. The car goes back into the right lane. I get back into the left lane and this goes on. I'm back and forth and back in this car will not, you know, get off my tail. I speed up. It speeds up. I slow down. It slows down. And so it's, you know, obvious this car is harassing us. And my friend, my she's been my best friend for, gosh, 30 years now. Um, her and I were just in full-blown panic mode at this point. You know, what is this car doing? Is he trying to hurt us? You know, what's going on? And she noticed because she was looking back at the car. And to her, she said it looked like the same black car we had seen the week prior. So, yeah. So I'm driving and I'm like, what is this guy doing? Well, I fast, fastly started approaching that other car that was way ahead of me. And as I'm approaching it, you know, I, you know, get in the left lane to pass it. Because at this point, I'm going really fast trying to get this car off my tail and I pass that car. I get back in the right lane. The whole time, this other car is still behind me. I get back in the right lane. It gets back into the right lane. And at this point, you know, my friend and I, we're just completely screaming. We're crying. We're just, you know, completely full-blown panic. And in a split second, Jim, I swear, I was looking ahead, <clears throat> driving, and I look in the review mirror, and I look ahead, and look in the review mirror, and I look ahead, and then when I look back in the review mirror, gone. The lights were gone. The car was gone. That is weird. That it is weird. Str- it seriously just disappeared. And all I could see in my review mirror was the two little headlights of that other car I had passed way back. And I could. it had enough light that I could see in between that car and my car that there was no car there in between us. Hmm. I have no idea where it went. I have no idea, you know, what happened, how that happened. And, you know, my friend, thankfully, she was with me because she witnessed the whole thing, you know, so I know that I wasn't going crazy. And it was funny because when I signed up for your podcast, I reached out to her and I said, hey, I said, you know, do you remember that incident that happened? You know, and she's like, yeah. And I said, tell me your side of things, because I, I just wanted to make sure that a, I wasn't crazy. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, I didn't leave any parts out. And she told me her side of things that was completely identical from what I still remember all these years later. And coincidentally, <clears throat> excuse me, when I asked her, you know, about, I asked her, I said, what stretch of highway was that? Because I couldn't remember because this was, you know, I only lived in Kentucky for about a year. So and this was back in the 90s. And she explained to me that that stretch of highway was called Dixie Highway, or as the locals called it, Dixie Dieway, because because so many fatal accidents in that stretch of highway that are like major ones that just are unexplained. Yikes. Yes. (laughs) So I don't know if it was a ghost car. I don't, I have no idea what it was to this day. I have, you know. I've always been interested in the paranormal. I've had things happen to me since I was a child. I used to see the hat man when I was little. I mean, I've had things happen to me all my life, but this was the probably the biggest head scratcher and the strangest one that's ever happened to me. Also, that same stretch of highway, you know what's close to there 
is uh, Waverly Hill Sanatorium. Oh, man. Yep. The tuberculosis hospital. We actually used to go there, you know, when, when I lived there because our friend, he used to live on the grounds. He was a caretaker. So we had permission, you know, to go inside the building. But apparently that Waverly Hills was also real close to that same stretch of highway too. Whether that's a coincidence, you know, is a good possibility, but, but that's my story. That's terrifying because, you know, that reminds me of an old movie. In fact, it was the first movie that Steven Spielberg ever directed, I think, I think, or very early on. And it may have been a TV movie. It was called Duel. And it was by a man going across, uh, I don't know if he's going across the country or ever, he's driving in like a regular sized car. And there was a semi out to kill him. And it was with a guy by the name of Dennis Weaver, who maybe some of those of a certain age may remember. He used to play McLeod on <laughs> on television, the, the cowboy hat-wearing sheriff. But, yes, uh, I, re- I remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what this reminds me of. And particularly being young, you know, it being yes. dark, there's no cell phones at that time. There's no one to call for help and to think, and whether it's, a phantom car or if it's a very real car i can't i can think of few things more terrifying yes and i tell you i never i never went back to that nightclub after that i refused to drive on that stretch of highway again (laughs) after that incident don't blame me one bit do not blame me one bit and you gave us uh, the title of this week's show a ride on the dieway Oh, yay. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> oh, at least something good came out of it. But uh, thank you yes. so much for sharing it. What an uh, incredibly powerful head scratcher. Ooh, thanks so much. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're listening to Jim Harold's Campfire. Norm is on the line and he is in law enforcement. And hats off to our good folks in law enforcement. They, we appreciate everything they do. And uh, Norm, you know, I'm sure in the process of his work, uh, interacts with many people every day. This may have been one of the strangest. Norm, welcome to the show. Tell us what happened. Sure, Jim. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to tell my story. I think, like most people who have had an encounter, um, they typically don't tell people just because they don't want to sound crazy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So the situation never quite sat well with me um, because I didn't want to sound crazy as well. I spent a lot of time over the years thinking about it, kind of figure out what exactly happened that night. And after going over it, trying to unpack it and make it make sense, you know, a million times I just kind of gave up until I kind of discovered podcasts I know you're a big fan of Astonishing Legends, and it wasn't until I listened to them and their three-part series on black-eyed kids that this all kind of came full circle and clicked and made sense for mm-hmm. me. Um, so a little bit of back about me. I am a state trooper in one of the states over here in New England. Um, I've been a trooper for almost 15 years. I got on 2007. The incident I'm uh, looking to share today happened back in 2009. It was summertime. Um like a new trooper, I was out there trying to be proactive, stop cars. I was up on a highway um, doing some motor vehicle enforcement, and it was the third car of the evening that I had stopped. I've never been big for, you know, getting people for speeding just a couple miles over. You had to be doing at least 15 miles an hour over the speed limit for me to even consider stopping you. And this car was coming. It was doing 87 miles an hour, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, I got a good one. So I waited for the car to pass me. Um, I pulled out behind it. 
hit my lights. I didn't even get the 30 miles an hour on the highway to try to catch up to it um, or even turn on my sirens and the vehicle immediately pulled over. I don't, no big deal. I thought to myself, all right, that was easy. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's not. Um, you know, one of the things that hasn't sat well with me over the years that I've thought about over and over again is what I didn't do next. You know, as a police officer, I guess you could say it's cop one-on-one. It's drilled into you from day one. When you pull over a car, you call dispatch, you tell them where you are, what you're doing, you call on the plate you're out with, quick vehicle description. In that case, you know, something bad happens, help knows where to come. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I didn't do any of that. And that's never sat well with me. And I'm not sure what the reason is behind it. Maybe it was just, um, well, let me get on with the story. We'll see if we can figure it out. So like I said, I go to pull over this vehicle. It pulls over immediately. I pull up behind it about 20 feet like I always do. And the second I put my car in the park, all the hair on my arms and neck stood up on edge. Hmm. It was like an immediate flight or fight response. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't take that physiological response lightly. Um, I'm kind of a book nerd. So I literally had just got done reading the book called Gift of Fear by Gavin Becker. And the premise of the book is trusting your gut. It was recommended to me in my field by my field training officer when I first got on. Um, told me it was an important read. It was something that could save your life. The premise of the book is just trusting your gut. And, you know, it, it makes a difference. So when all the hair on my arm and my back and my neck stood up just from stopping a car with no apparent reason, I paid attention. You know, I started scanning the car, watching for traffic, trying to figure out, you know, what is my body trying to tell me? What can I not see that's here? And and nothing really stuck out to me. So I put the the cars in park. I'm getting ready. All right. I got to make my approach. Um, You know, there might have been a little bit of cockiness, a little bit of new cop arrogance about me at that point. Now, to kind of put it further in perspective, at this point, I'm 27 years old. I'm in the best shape of my life. I could do push-ups forever. I'm pretty fresh out of the academy, like a year and a half, mm-hmm. six foot tall, 210 pounds, wearing a bulletproof vest, armed with a sidearm, 32 rounds of ammunition, a taser, pepper spray, a baton. You know, there's no reason for me to have been freaked out or nervous for any reason whatsoever. Right. I get out of my vehicle. I begin the approach. And from the second I make my first step, it just feels like I'm wading through water. It feels like this 50 pound block weights on my feet. Like huh. every fiber of my being was just screaming at me. Don't go to this vehicle. Don't do it. But again, you know, it's my job. I stopped the vehicle. I got to follow through. Well, I'm still not completely ignoring all these physiological responses. I'm scanning. I'm watching for traffic. I'm looking for anything on the side of the road. I'm looking for furtive movements by the operator, something being thrown out the windows. He's trying to hide something. Um, and these are all things we kind of normally do, but because of my reaction, I'm, I'm really looking now. Right. So I approach this vehicle. I get to the back um, window of the driver's side and I'm looking in the whole back of the car is just packed full of stuff, bags. Um, there's nothing that I can see. I got a good visual of, you know, of the backside of the operator. He's motionless. The driver's side window's down. His hands are at 10 and 2 on the steering wheel. And he's just sitting there. And he's, I can only assume, waiting for me to interact with him. So I take another step closer. I'm now at what we call the B pillar of the vehicle, which is the pillar between the front door and the rear door. And 
that's kind of where we stop. It's like a tactical thing we do because it gives us an advantage. The operator can't see us, doesn't have a direct line of sight of us. So if they decide they want to try to hurt us or do something, it's more work for them. Right. Um, so as I step to that B pillar, I see the operator just slightly lean forward, kind of look down and just cock his head slightly in my direction. So he knows I'm there. You know, he doesn't turn, look at me. He doesn't acknowledge me. He says nothing. Um, he just kind of slightly cocks his head to acknowledge that I'm there. And now also why I'm at this window, I'm looking for anything still. I'm smelling the air, obviously, see if he's a drunk driver. You know, was there any narcotic smell in the air? Um, and, and the only thing that I picked up on was this horrific smell coming from within the car. It just smelled huh. horrible. And, you know, I hope the audience forgives me. I'm probably going to sound a little stereotypical and maybe a little off. And that's not my intent. I'm just doing my best to describe what I was relating it to. So where I work, there's a lot of farm communities. I, I know a lot of farmers. And for some reason, I start to size him up, obviously. And I'm thinking, all right, this guy's a farmer. That's what this, that's what this smell is. It's like, like he's been you know, stomping around in the barnyard. Right. You know, and that's my thought. And then, you know, I, I start sizing him up. Like I say, I take notice of his clothes. I'm looking at him. I'm like, all right, white male, probably 30s. And I'm thinking, all right, this guy's maybe five, seven, five foot eight. 150, 160 pounds at best. There's no reason why physically I should be scared of him that I can see so far. You know, there's nothing crazy going on. Right. Um, I got this bad smell and then I, I noticed his clothing again, never really picked up on this before until having listened to stuff after it looked like he dressed himself from the Salvation Army. <laughs> like he looked like he did all his shopping at a thrift store and there's nothing wrong with that. But again, that also kind of reinforced my idea that this guy might be a farmer. I know farmers, they work outside, they destroy their clothes. They really don't, sorry about that. They really don't care, you know, what they're wearing if they're just ground animals and doing what they need to do. Right. So that was my, my, my sizing him up. So I feel like, all right, he knows I'm there. And all this happened in a couple of seconds. This isn't like five minutes of me standing there in silence. And I finally decide, all right, it's time to interact with this guy. So um, I introduced myself and again, I'm just going to throw out a fake name. Uh, my name is trooper man with the state police. Um, do you know why I stopped you this evening? Now, again, he's sitting in his car, hands at 10 and two on the steering wheel. Still, his head is just slightly cocked in my direction and he just turns a little bit more so I, he can catch me out of his peripherals, but he's not looking at me. And he just gets this giant creepy Cheshire cat grin on his face huh. and he doesn't say a word. So I, I repeat myself, sir, trooper man with the state police. Do you know why I stopped you this evening? Silence, not a word, not a move, no motion, just a big creepy grin. Sir, I noticed you were doing 87 miles an hour tonight. The speed limit's 65. Is there a reason for your speed? Is everything okay? Silence, no response, just a creepy grin. Sir, I, I can tell you were in a hurry. I just need your license, registration, insurance. We'll, we'll get you on your way as soon as we can. Silence, no response, big creepy grin. This guy doesn't move a muscle, doesn't make to reach into his glove box to get any paperwork, doesn't motion for a wallet, pull out an ID, nothing. He is a statue. He just is looking down slightly out the car and grinning. Now, I can't see his whole face. 
because of the way he's kind of positioned himself. So now I'm kind of thinking to myself, all right, is this guy being passive aggressive? Is he just trying to give me a hard time? Um, is he a sovereign citizen and doesn't believe I have the authority to stop him? So he's just kind of going through the motions. I, I didn't know what was going on. So at this point, I'm trying to determine what my next best course of action is. So I'm thinking, all right, maybe this guy's not going to help me identify him or even work with me. I'm going to ask him to step out of the vehicle to the back of the vehicle. I'm going to take him into investigative detention and then figure out who he is and why I got this horrific feeling in my stomach and all the hair standing up on the side of my arms and back of my neck. Right. So I tell him, sir, you know, I understand you're upset. It's never fun getting stopped by the police. If you're not going to give me any identifying information, I'm going to ask you to step out to the back of the vehicle with me. Now, when I said this, this is the first time he gave any indication that he was hearing what I was saying. Almost. He, he, his hands were still at 10 and 2 in the steering wheel. He pulled himself forward by using the steering wheel like two or three inches. And then he turned and he looked directly at me. And when he looked at me, his eyes were completely black. They were just voids. Ooh. When, when, oh boy. Now I I literally put my hand on my gun. I didn't draw it. I took two or three steps back without even realizing it. Next thing I know, I'm standing in the middle of a travel lane on a highway. Oh gosh. It's 10:30 at night. Thankfully, traffic was like I said, it's a rural area. It wasn't that busy. And he is just staring at me with these black eyes and this giant Cheshire cat grin on his face not moving, not doing anything. And I continued to back up. I got all the way back to my car. I corrected myself to get back to my car. I got in my car. I put it in drive and I'll throw myself under the bus. I probably did 90 to hundred miles an hour all the way back to the police station. <laughs> I was, I was so freaked out by what I saw. I didn't even realize my emergency lights were still on red and blues flashing all the way down the highway oh for 11 gosh. miles. I pulled into the back parking lot of the police station, still didn't realize my lights were on. And I sat in my car, like what just happened? A coworker of mine came out, knocked on the window, scared the crap out of me. And it's like, Hey, your lights are on everything. Okay. And I'm like, yep, sure enough. I shut my lights off. Yep. I said, everything was okay. And <laughs> that was my experience. Wow. Now, something people might ask, I, I think I know the answer, but it wasn't like somebody, you know, people who may be on drugs or something, their eyes uh, may, you know, the pupils of their eyes may get large and, and, and dilate or whatever. It wasn't anything like that. It was the whole eyeball, right? It was almost like there was no eye. They were just like, Gosh. the best way I could describe it is black voids. It it was the most unsettling thing I've ever seen. And like I said, I thought about it after because I made some, what could have been fatal errors as a young trooper. Like you wow. always call in the play. You always tell the troop what you're doing and where you are. I didn't do any of these. And I, I don't know if it's because of that flight or fight response that kicked in when my car went in park or if it was something else, or if it was just pure stupidity, I honestly don't know, but it was, it was, it was creepy. It was the most terrifying thing that has happened to me on this job ever. And I've done some pretty, pretty involved things. Yeah. I mean, um, being a cop that long, you know, trooper, I'm sure you've come into some dangerous and scary situations with very kind of, you know, quote, normal people, let alone some kind of whatever a black eyed kid is. Whew. 
man, what a story. Well, Norm, thank you so much for your service to your your state and your community. And thank you for sharing a Campfire Instant Classic. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Shelly is on the line from Iowa. We're so glad that she uh, found us. Uh, I believe the Box of Oddities uh, told her about us. So uh, we appreciate that. And check out uh, Jethro and Kat. They are fantastic people with a fantastic podcast. And uh, Shelly is now going to tell us about a house that she bought and the strangeness that ensued. Shelly, welcome to the show. Tell us what happened. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, I think in order for everyone to understand my story and for it to come full circle, I need to explain that uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, I used to walk by this house um, every afternoon on my way to my friend's house waiting for sports activities. So I always admired it. I thought it was beautiful. Um, and then in 2010, I ran into the woman that owned this house in, in a local convenience store. So I had said to her, you know, kind of jokingly, hey, you ever going to sell me the house on the hill? She said, no, it wasn't for sale. Uh, so I kind of left it at that. But her husband then caught up with me and he said, look, he said, this house is a money pit. Um, I want to get rid of it, but she's emotionally attached to it. Her her husband had passed away there in the early 80s and it had been empty for 21 years in at during, you know, once 2010 oh, wow. came around. Wow. So, and Jimmy got to understand this house was gorgeous. It was a two-story Italianate home. It was built in 1858 by the founding father of our small town. Wow. It, yeah. It had 35 windows, seven entrances. It was magnificent. I, I went home that night and I talked to my husband about buying this home and he kind of lets me do what I want. So I sat down and I wrote her a three page letter. Mm -hmm. She wrote me back a couple of weeks later and says, uh, you get six months to sell your house. And otherwise I don't want to, you know, that'll be the end of it. So in, on July 19th, 2010, we moved in and things started happening immediately. Uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter was 12 at the time, and she was the only one still, only child still living at home. She would get poked in the middle of the night. Her blankets would come off. Um, televisions would turn on in the middle of the night. We would hear uh, voices, cigarettes, smell cigarette smoke, perfume. Um, and one of the strangest things was the pounding on the basement door. It wasn't knocking. It was pounding. Hmm. So I knew that if my dogs heard it, then I wasn't imagining it. You know, that was kind of my reinforcement there. Okay, right. this is really happening. Well, um, my daughter had uh, had seen several images, one, or I don't know, spirits. One was a cowboy. Um, she saw his saw the whole cowboy. Uh, she heard his spurs on the hardwood floors. She saw a woman in a white dress that was barefooting, holding a child's hand. And she saw a soldier in the basement and she thought that it was a civil war uniform he had on and he had a bandage on his head. Well, the, after so many strange things that were happening, we decided to have a paranormal team come in. So in July of 2015, a team came in, pretty much told us everything we knew. There were several spirits that lived with us. Uh, the medium that came with Jim said that she was concerned about an evil entity in the north uh bedroom on the second floor 
Whoa. I told her I hadn't. Uh, yeah. I said, I haven't really ever felt anything weird or bad happen in there. So I kind of just went with it. But she also felt that there was an injured person in the basement that needed to go to the light, huh. which we figure is the soldier because my daughter's slime with a bandage on, on his head. So then fast forward into 2018, we're in Northern Wisconsin at my nephew's birthday party. And this woman comes up to me and she says, Shelly, you have an infant girl, an infant girl with you. She was buried in your basement over a hundred years ago, and she needs to be um, given a proper, a proper goodbye. Um, She says, when you get home, I need you to go to the Southeast corner of your basement and say a prayer for this little thing. Um, That did, I mean, that didn't phase me at all because when, when we were remodeling, when we started renovations, Jim, part of it was digging up the dirt floor in the basement so we could pour cement. And in doing so, we did uncover some skeletal remains. Oh, my. Yeah. Local local police officers said, just bury them, say a prayer, you know, because this was a hospital during the Civil War. And then right after it was a widow's home. It's been an old folks home, a mortuary. It's been so many things over its 160 some years. So um, this Gallup in Wisconsin told me that she felt my house was a portal and that um, at any any day, any given day, there were hundreds of spirits that passed through this house. Oh, my. So it's like, okay. And she also felt that there was something evil in a room. And then she described what was actually that north bedroom on the second floor. She described it perfectly. So, um, so then last... Last February, a friend of of mine and I are putting a video together. We're going to try to win a home makeover or a hometown makeover. Right. Her friend from Tennessee, who is a medium, blessed her before she entered my house because her friend from Tennessee says, "Um, I feel really weird about that house you're going to go in. Uh, So I'm going to say this prayer to, to keep you and your husband safe. Well, we ended up calling the medium while she was here and she told me that there was an evil entity in this room in my house. And Yikes. she thought that it was, I know. So all these people. You just gave me the and, chills. It's like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and I told her too, I said, I've never felt anything weird, bad, or otherwise in that room. Well, she said, uh, she also thought that the house was a portal. Um, so they left. And that night I decided that, I was going to go upstairs and tell whatever that thing was in that North bedroom to leave. Um, I go up there. I say, whoever you are, I want you out. I don't want any negativity in this house. I go on and on. And then I felt something on my side and I lifted up my shirt and I had claw marks from the middle of my back all the way around to my belly button. Oh, geez. So I ran downstairs hysterical showing it to my husband i made him take pictures and he's like what are we gonna do i said i don't know so after i calmed down i and it's dark out at this time but you can still see because we do live in town and um, you can see with the street lights and stuff so this is where you're gonna think i'm i don't know what you're gonna think i go up our main set of stairs the big set of stairs and it's a big winding staircase and it takes us to the second floor And right there is my daughter's bedroom. I look up and I see what can only be described as a nine foot bat. 
Oh my gosh. I looked at it for seconds. I mean, not like three, four seconds. And I can see its head, the outline of its wings up behind its head. I saw its claws on its hands, its claws on its feet. And I turned my body and I went left down the long hallway into our bedroom, trying to, trying to rationalize what I saw. Well, I turn on all the lights and I go back into my daughter's room and it's not there. So I go downstairs and I tell my husband, I said, I just saw what clawed me. It's a giant bat. Well, so we're freaking out. And he's like, what are we going to do? We have to move. And I said, I got a better idea. So I emailed this. She's, she calls herself an angel reader from a town just 30 miles south of me. I emailed her and I said, we need a cleansing. Well, three days later, she shows up with these three women. Jim, we're doing the, we're doing the, um, we're praying. She's doing the sage. Uh, we get upstairs to my daughter's room and the angel reader says, oh my. And I said, what? She said, Shelly, you have an ancient being in this house and he guards a portal. He has never been in human form. He's thousands of years old and he has done this job so well for thousands and thousands of years. She said, I can't understand what his name is that he's trying to tell me. So we're just going to call him Fred. She said, but he has a magnificent wingspan, probably about a 30 foot wingspan. And he only lets in good spirits into this, into this world. And then she says, you saw him? And I said, yeah, the other night, that's when I emailed you. Mm-hmm. And she said, okay. She said, well, he did not mean for you to see him, but he was taking care of an evil entity. And he's telling me that you will never be hurt by that again. Oh, so the 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 nine foot bat wasn't what scratched you. It was no. this other entity he was trying to take care of. Yes. So um, she said that he told her that the house had waited for me for a very, very, very long time. I was always supposed to be its caretaker and that they were so happy that I was finally here. Wow. Wow. Well, it is interesting. I mean, to me, it's very interesting. You as a young child, it sounds like uh, going back decades, had an interest in this house, like a natural interest. And you just happened to bump into that person and make an offhanded comment. It's just, it does seem like it was meant to be. Yeah. And, and that's what I said too. I said for, I mean, I, I have, I've loved this house for 40 years and um, now it's mine and my husband's, and I guess this is where I'm supposed to be. And I, I'm living with a nine foot something Fred that has never been in human form and is happy I'm here. So very, yeah. very cool story. Well, thank you so much for sharing it. It's certainly unique. And I guess uh, the nine foot bat is a good thing in this case. Yeah. Yes, I guess he is. Fred. <laughs> Fred, Fred, the nine foot bat. But that that's very cool. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for joining us tonight on the campfire. Thanks for having me, Jim. 
Oh, I love to hear from international callers and international podcasters. And Simon is on the line and he has a great podcast. He's going to tell us all about it. But first, he has a campfire story for us. Simon, welcome to the show and please tell us your campfire story. Thanks, Jim. Awesome to be here. So this story has been with me for a very, very long time. A crazy experience for me and most definitely changed me. So I was super young when this all happened, roughly three or four at a time. Um, I'll very briefly talk about the house I lived in. So you just get a mental image of where I was at. Uh, My parents had only recently built our house. In fact, my dad actually built it from the ground up entirely by himself, which is no mean feat. And it's still around today. Yeah, pretty cool, right? (laughs) Um, The house itself is really, really big. Um, And the land is roughly 4,000 square meters. It's designed in such a way that it has head clearance of about two-story roof within a one-story house. So massive roof space and multiple rooms. So when you're a little guy like I was and everything was already big, the house interior is just huge. And the plan sees the house divided into two areas, the kids and the parents' sleeping spaces. So keep this in mind for later. If you can imagine being really small in a massive house in the dark, that was me at 8 o'clock every night. Now, the creepiness, yeah, I know, right? the creepiness starts when the house is finished and, and we properly moved in. Uh, my parents meet up with a couple who attended the church that we used to go to. I was really young, so I didn't really know who they were. And when you're young, your parents look after you and make your decisions for you, right? right. Uh, that includes who you spend your time with and, and what toys you play with. At some point, I'm also brought to their house. And after a short while after meeting them, I begin doing my own thing, running around, jumping on stuff outside, and just being a young little guy and playing with both families, after which I went home to rest. A week later, right, I receive a new toy, Jim. Um, I think you may see where this is going. <laughs> Um, my room was packed with toys. I had Mickey Mouse on top of the bunk bed, He-Man, Biker Mice from Mars, Captain Planet, massive range, um, tucked away in pillows. Then I had this new toy, which was a clown doll. Now, as a cliche as it sounds, mate, where clown dolls are creepy or scary in loads of ways, to me, this wasn't the case, like not at all. I held onto it, played with it, and had a really good time and packed it with my other toys. Uh, roughly one month later, thereabouts, I start having trouble sleeping. Uh, I just start, start waking up for no reason at all. I couldn't figure it out. Um, I think I was a bit too young to figure it out. And I try reading to sleep, no luck. Close my eyes and endure it, no luck. Try and count sheep, no luck. And you know, mate, when you're counting sheep, you're at the bottom of the barrel as options go. So I'm this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm this young little guy who can't sleep and I can't figure out why this is the case. So I get up and go towards the door. But this time I can't move. I'm frozen. Oh, but boy. in a weird way. Yeah. The house, or rather my room, had a completely new feeling to it. Kind of like fight or flight syndrome. I just couldn't get out, but at the same time, I wanted to move, but I was fearful to move. Every time I tried, I'd stop. And the space outside my room was was terrifying when it was once really safe. And the space inside my room made me feel squeezed. I would at one point be standing outside my bed just waiting and not know why. It was huh. absolutely terrifying. So what do you do when you're a kid and you're trying to build up courage, right? The first thing you do is you grab a pillow and you wear it like a shield. (laughs) That's what I did. Um, Walking into my hallway that divides my room from my parents. And this hallway was long, pitch black with multiple door entrances that were also pitch black. So my imagination would would begin messing with me. Um, And I couldn't go back to my room. and I was stuck in the massive hallway, essentially freaking out, unable to move for minutes. Um, there'd be a breaking point where I would just run full pelt into the darkness, literally at blinding speed. I wouldn't even know where I'm running. Um, with the feeling that, you know, eyes were burning in the back of my neck all the way down the hall to my parents' room. 
And sometimes though, I was so tired, right? And so scared. I would sleep in the middle of the house on a couch, completely undetected by my family, just to get out of that room. So you can see, kind of understand how intense it was for me at that young age. And at the time, I didn't really talk much and kept these night uh, escapes (laughs) to myself. Um, It was hell. Because this kept going on for, believe it or not, Jim, right? Three years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. So, at one point, I was just so good at being quiet, my parents would even know until much later that I was sleeping on the couch every night. So, yeah, I would get up and repeat this routine at nauseam for literally years, and it it did take its toll. Now, don't get me wrong. My parents noticed this is not a horror film where stuff happens and they just blame it on some benign reason, like, oh, it's just growing up or it's just a phase. Um, my dad in particular knew something was up, but could never figure out what the issue was. At some, or at, see, at some point, or extent rather, I didn't know either. And sometimes you can't really tell what's affecting you because you're so deeply influenced that you can't see the forest from the trees. Right. Um, so you, you know, you're too far deep into it, um, the effect. And my dad would literally see me struggle to get to sleep and carry me to bed. So a side note, if you can imagine trying to get out of your room only to wake up back in that room minutes later. <laughs> so it's just awful. Uh, that aside, I would often see his shadow walk away from the entrance of my room thinking I was asleep. I definitely wasn't. And every year it would get worse and a constant feeling of being watched, a sort of invisible pressure around me, like kind of feel like I'm trapped and a physical deadlock, if you know what I mean, wanting to move, but I can't. So when I got older, roughly six, my dad tried something different and caught something that others missed. He saw that I was doing, he saw what I was doing with the clown during the day. And it never occurred to him until later that the clown was the issue until he watched me really closely. So I progressively and actively moved that thing further and further away from me over the years. But it was always in line of sight of me somehow, always. If I was in that room, it was pointed in such a way that it would see me. Then it clicked, of course, the clown. But he couldn't be sure. So imagine just grabbing your son's doll and taking it away for seemingly no reason. Right. Kind of be a bit strange. So he played detective. So one night, which all I can remember, recall rather, was my room being pitch black and warm. The whole family came around my bed, so including my brother and dad, and, and brought me some paper as he knew I liked to draw and said to me, show me how you feel. And I bundled up very tightly and was practically shaking. And then he said, draw me what it is as directly as that so that he'd get some kind of response relative to how I'm feeling. So I did. He gave me brown crayons, and I started drawing. I finished my scribbling, and my dad said, Right, I know what it is. Get me the matches. The picture was a drawing of me in a stick person form, trapped in a crudely drawn cage, loads of brown darkness with loads and loads of big eyes. But why he noticed it was the clown gym was because the eyes were identical to that of the clown. So wavy eyelashes, and and they're quite quite big pupils and I'll never forget it. So, you know, those cliche images where kids drawing black stuff with creepy eyes, that was me for one night. I was that kid. (laughs) Um, My dad grabbed the doll amongst a bunch of toys, yanked it out and he sprinted out the door into the backyard to burn it in a steel drum with mom falling just behind him. I can tell you the, I can't tell you rather the relief I felt when that happened, because if you can imagine you're wearing something heavy on your back that you can't see and suddenly that heavy piece is lifted from you, like relief was what it was. I once told a friend that it was like having a splinter pulled from my mind. So that's the best best example I can give you. Wow. Um, yeah. And it turns out the doll, right, was gifted to us from the couple that I told you about at the beginning. Yes. So what dad didn't know until later was that their son had only recently died and they begrudgingly gifted the doll to me. So there was a fight later with my dad and the guy where there was commentary from the other man about why his son had died, yet I was healthy. So a level of unfortunate deep jealousy, we think. 
I know it doesn't really make a lot of sense from maybe multiple perspectives, but anger, envy, and grief can kind of warp how you see the world around you. And it was that same day that dad clicked that it must be that blasted clown doll. So do you so think thought, that do you think that the doll was cursed by them intentionally, or do you think that somehow the the clown doll led to their child's death? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's the former. I, I feel that it's actually it's an after the fact. So their influence, their their hatred is basically what I feel effectively haunted me for years. Kind of like a bit of like, you know, a grudge essentially just embedded in this doll that wherever it was, it just pulled me in and would just put pressure on me. So because it, it was complications, neuro- neurological complications where the son died, which is absolutely awful. Um, and I, I, I guess that feeling and that hatred of seeing this young guy that was about the same age as me running around having fun while theirs is you know, passed on. It was, you know, it's tragic to be honest. Um, and the, the doubling fact about it all was that I was completely oblivious to all of this. So it affected me outside of knowing this information and, and I guess the hatred and the anger from the other man was so strong that it directly left the mark on me and on the doll itself. Um, but there is there is a silver lining to this story, Jim. So this experience may be pretty tough. So the night stopped scaring me and darkness without that thing in my room was actually comforting. I had no issues with sleeping after that. And I would actually like casually walk through the corridors at night, almost laughing at what I used to be scared of. I don't even have a phobia of clowns, which actually baffled my parents. So I'm happy to go watch like Stephen King's It and not bat an eyelid. But, you know, like three years of exposure therapy helps you build a defense if you get my drift. And and that, that was my account. Yeah, I got to tell you. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, I've, I've never I've never actually uh, shared this with anyone publicly, like in a, in a forum like this. This is the very, very first time. So um, it's actually really cool to get it off my chest. <laughs> It is very, very. I, I, I hesitate to say, hesitate to say it was a cool story because that was terrifying for you as a little boy, and I don't want to say, oh, that's great, <laughs> but it is a very powerful story. Let's just say that. But oh, I, and I was going. You answered the question I was going to ask you: Are you afraid of clowns now? Because you know that that really is a thing, and I wonder how much of that is because of it, really. Um, yeah. I do want to, I love it? that. I love that. Uh, I, I love the original, uh, the, oh, the nice. and, um, in terms of movies, the, the, it was actually made for TV here in the States. And then, uh, oh. I did enjoy the, I did enjoy the feature feature film. I didn't see the second one. I just saw the first one, but last year, I don't know if you saw, mm-hmm. I went in, we have a virtual, uh, campfire party every year for Halloween. And we're going to have one oh. this year, everybody, October 30th at 8 PM. And details will be via my email newsletter and social media that you can tune in. But last year I dressed as, uh, the newer version of it. Of oh, Pennywise no way. Yeah. So, <laughs> but some people were totally freaked out, said, I'm not going to watch that because I'm terrified, um, uh, of, go- uh, of clowns. I can, I can completely understand. Cause I guess the, the premise of that, being able to get close to the kids and, and within their comfort zone. And then I guess it perverting that ideology of, of being you know, someone that's there to entertain, completely being perverted and being you know, dangerous and freaky and scary. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is terrifying. I have actually find the Tim Curry version more frightening. Come down here, Georgie. We all float down here. You know, <laughs> <laughs> mate, me and you both actually, the, yeah. the, the, the I've seen the second one, what part one and part two, and the very first, uh, the very first one with Tim Curry is absolutely my favorite. It is a bit campy in some areas. Sure, you know, it's they old. didn't have the special effects. They didn't have the big Bingo. budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
But I tell you what, the the um the atmosphere that it brought on, especially with the the part one, the kids, man, they nailed it. Like they nailed the feeling of just working together, fear factor, um, and and kind of always punching up and having it just like a struggle just to try and fight this creature. Right. Right. Yeah. It was it, fantastic. It, it was very, very well done. Simon, tell us uh, briefly about your podcast and where we can find it. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jim. So my podcast is called Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales. Um, you can find me on any like any platform, podcasting platforms, on iTunes, um, Audio Boom, um, Libsyn, uh, Buzzsprout, anywhere, right? If you just search Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales, you'll find me. Um, and you can even email me uh, if, at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. And basically what it is, is a narrating um, audio drama podcast. It shares scary stories, fiction of all kinds, and it also... I'm not sure if you'd be familiar with this, Jim. It remasters old-time radio. Do you? Oh, I love old-time radio. (laughs) I love old-time radio. Wicked. It's like Sherlock Holmes series. So I go back back in time, 1940s, and I basically use technology, like uh, artificial intelligence, to repair old radio to almost brand new. Brilliant. So much fun. Yeah, it's, I do it for free. So the whole thing is for free and just for fun. Um, and that's once a week on Mondays and the rest of the two days during the week. So it's three times a week. Um, it's just storytelling. Excellent. Well, everybody, check it out. Simon, thank you so much for sharing your story and your podcast and being a part of Campfire. An absolute pleasure, Jim. John is on the line from Florida, and he found out about us just a few months ago from the great Coast to Coast AM. So we thank George Norrie, Richard Sierra, Tom Danheiser, the whole crew over there for everything they've done for us. And John is going to share, well, I would call this almost a, a quintessential head scratcher. Uh, I like this story, John. I can't wait to hear more. Please, please tell us and welcome aboard. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time to hear my story. I've only told this story twice in my life. Um, and so it, uh, and the funny thing is, is as, as it came around, I got some validation years, years later. So, uh, it takes me back to, uh, probably when I was 13 years old. So maybe in 1979, 1980, um, I grew up in, in South Florida and had a really idyllic childhood and had a wonderful neighborhood. And we had a, uh, a, a family that lived down the road that had a huge side yard, huge. We could actually play, play football. We could play 11 on 11 football. We could have different neighborhoods come over. It was, you know, it was, it was very, uh, leave it to beaverish kind of a growing up existence. Cool. Um, in one night, I, I usually played, usually played with my brother and it was a rare occasion that, um, it was a, it was not a school night. So I was a six o'clock, 6 PM dinner kind of kid. We had to be at home. So we had played football, uh, 6 PM dinner time, uh, came home. Uh, my brother and I came home and my brother got in trouble at dinner and wasn't allowed to go back after dinner. He was down our dinner to go, go play football. So I went by myself, which is something I never did. So we rode our bikes and it was a, it was just about a mile bike ride, but in the same neighborhood. So no big deal. Uh, down a, down a main road though, uh, in our neighborhood and we played football and I, uh, you know, finished, finished the game. And my, my brother had a, had a friend that was kind of making fun of me. So game ends and he's kind of, kind of making fun of me and I get in my bike and I, and I ride away. I go down the street. He's chasing after me. I remember him chasing after me explicitly. 
and I'm going right down the center of the street. Obviously, no cars are coming. Sure. Uh, I'm going down the center of the street, and I remember looking back at him and him yelling something to me. I turn around, and I'm on my on like 10-speed bicycle. I look down. I go over a manhole cover, and that's the last thing I remember. I uh, wake up. It's pitch black outside. And I'm lying in the street. Um, There's medics around me. Uh, I can see some flashing lights. I uh, can hear some people slunky. I I don't really know what's going on. Um, The medic that is leaning over me. His nas his last his name I remember distinctly his name on his badge was Vetter B E T T E R, and I heard someone say, "How's his blood pressure?" And he's like, "Well, it's better than mine." <laughs> and he said, "You know, I just remember people saying, how did he get here?'" And I was facing the opposite direction of which I was heading to, so I'm huh. you know heading I'm I'm facing back. Yeah, to the to the I, the quote unquote football field, the the you know the, the kids' the house, side yard, yeah. So yeah, uh, but I but I'm I'm probably uh, a quarter of a mile away, maybe not quite a half a mile away from the kids' house, but you know, again, it's down one street, and then it would be a left turn to my house, uh, my street, and it's dark, and you know they got the ambulance out there, um, so they say you know the blood pressure's as good as mine, and they ask where's his, you know. They asked me, they said, what's the last you remember? I said, I was on my bicycle. They said, we don't see a bicycle. And then someone said, here it is. And the bicycle was about a hundred yards away in a vacant lot. And it's very odd. Uh, and it's something that tro- what, what, what troubled me, it, it, again, it didn't, it didn't trouble me that night, obviously, you know, I was, I was groggy but I wasn't hurt. And the thing that stuck out with me, because they did ask, they said, what happened to him? And someone said, he must've fell off his bicycle. And they're like, he has no injuries. You know, when you fall off your bike, right? what happens? You skin your hands, you break sure. your fall, you skin your hands or your knees or something. I was wearing shorts and you know, it's, it's Florida. So I was, you know, I was wearing shorts and, and had no, you know, abrasions at all. Um, my head didn't hurt per se, but I was groggy and they, and they, you know, my mom finally came, but the only reason why my mom came was a person that they knew found me in the road and they called the ambulance. Obviously then the person drove to my house and asked my, my, my mom and dad, if, you know, if your son was out, uh, and they said, yes, they said, well, he's lying in the middle of the street. So they take me home and, you know, they say, watch out for a concussion. And, you know, just, just felt very, very weird. Just not good. Just upset stomach. You know, but not injured, Crazy. You know, not injured at all. So I honestly don't think much of this event for, mm, let's say, so that was, uh, I would say probably 12 years or so. I'm substitute teaching at my old high school and 
kids got talking about UFOs and all that. And they were talking about abductions and UFOs. And I, I jokingly said, I said, I think maybe I was abducted by a UFO. And of course, the kids, you know, the kids, I was only 22 at the time. And actually some kids in the class and I was teaching were brothers and sisters of some of my friends. And they say, what are you talking about? So I told them the story that I'm telling you right now. And, and I relay all the information. And this girl stands up in the class and says, oh, my God. She says, I've heard that story before. I said, what? She says, she says, my uncle was the paramedic that treated you. And he's told that story to our family that there was this kid lying in the middle of the room, (laughs) (laughs) lying in the middle of the room with no injuries and his bicycle, you know, a hundred yards away in a vacant lot. And my bike didn't have any scrapes or anything. I definitely wasn't hit by a car. Obviously, you know, um, again, I was riding right down the center of the road. Uh, and then suddenly I wake up, I'm facing the wrong direction, lying in the middle of the road. I have no idea what happened. All I know is I told again, this is the second time, third time I've told this story in my life. And, uh, and, and, and one thing you mentioned in the note, and I don't think you mentioned it there, the last mm-hmm. name of the, the, the uncle was Vetter. B-E-T-T-E-R. He was para- paramedic. And it matched up. It all matched and it up. And it matched up. The girl who was telling me that, she was, her last name is Vetter. The Vetters, a lot of the Vetter family, uh, brothers and sisters, were at that high school. Uh, I actually went to school with, with some of them. But this was a niece of the paramedic that treated me. Wow. 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 So that, you know, again, that doubly shows the veracity of your story. Your recollection is correct. You're not missing anything. It was kind of like dropped out of the the blue. So is that your theory? Do you think you were potentially maybe abducted by ET or do you have alternate theories? What do you think? The only, I I honestly can't think of anything and and I never wanted to say that, but I, you know, I, I, you know, from that time period, I was, I was in, uh, in search of kid. I was, you know, you know, Here that too, kind yeah. of kid that, that didn't watch things like that and just trying to figure out and then again, unsolved mysteries as you got older, you know, things like that. And just trying to figure out what may have happened, you know, how can I fall off a bicycle in the middle of the road, a heavily traveled road, uh, not get hurt. and my bicycle be, you know, your, if you fall off, your bicycle is going to be somewhere near you. It's yeah. not going to be a hundred yards away in a vacant lot. Well, all you know, I, uh, I, I don't well, know. I know. I, you know, so, you know, I hate to, I hate to extrapolate out there and go, okay, yes, I, I, I was kidnapped by a UFO. I don't know. Um, it's, I think of it more as, as missing time. Right. You know, a time slip or something. Well, that could be too. That could be too. Uh, The weird thing is that you were separated from your bicycle, but who knows? I mean, I often say it on the show and you're fairly new listener, but Mm -hmm. uh, I I, I basically say that I believe that the world is a far stranger place than we give it credit for. And what actually might be going on may be so much weirder than, uh, I, I mean, here's another and I, and this doesn't mean I believe this, but let's just say we're all living in a computer simulation. Maybe that was mm-hmm. a glitch. Maybe that was a glitch. 
You know, I, well, I mean, you know, there, there's so yeah. much they could be. I mean, I've, I listened to your show enough. I've, I've caught every episode since I think, you know, since, uh, you know, 490 or 480 something or whatever, and mm-hmm. you know, listen to them all and, and hear some, some, you know, weird time slip stories. I haven't heard anyone like this because most of the other stories have kind of a, a formal ending or a happening. This was just kind of. It was there. It was there. I, I don't know. There. Well, I I just don't know. It gives us food for thought. John, thank you for really giving us a head scratcher par excellence. (laughs) Thank you so much. Next up on the campfire, we have a special guest. He's actually been a guest on our programs. I'm talking about Reverend Gerald S. Hunter, and he is the author of uh, the series of Haunted Michigan books. And he's calling today from Michigan, and he's going to talk about growing up in an extremely haunted home. So it's good to talk to him in kind of this different situation as a campfire caller. Reverend Hunter, thank you for joining us today, and and please tell us your story. Well, thank you for having me. My story today starts when uh, I was 12 years old, back in 1964. My father was a uh, police officer for Wayne County, Michigan, which encompasses the city of Detroit. And he thought things were getting pretty violent and wanted to move his family out of there. So we moved from the suburbs to an old, dilapidated farmhouse in the little village of Brooklyn, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And uh, immediately upon moving in, we began to experience strange things going on. When I say we, I mean me and my two older brothers. They were not much older than me, but we all started experiencing things like footsteps and doors opening and closing, shadows. And then we started seeing people. And when I say seeing people, I mean uh, we, the ghosts we would see were as solid and colorful as you and I are. They would look at us and disappear or look at us and walk out of the room and disappear, those kinds of things. Yeah, we weren't used to that. And so uh, we went to my father. Now, he was a very macho, good man. And uh, we told him what we were encountering. Uh, We did this together, the three of us. And uh, my father, the macho policeman he was, oh, that's nothing. Don't worry about it. There's no such thing. Ignore it. Be a man kind of thing. Right. And uh, these things continued to happen. So we finally decided, let's Go talk to mom. Now, my mother was a, uh, well, she was born in Alabama. So she was a Southern belle with a Southern accent all of her life. My mother and father are, have since passed away. But we went to talk to her and uh, we told her what we'd been experiencing. And in that sweet Southern belle voice, she just said, now, boys, they won't hurt you. And I remember remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, mom sees them, too. And uh, indeed, she had been. And um, the hauntings continued. For instance, uh, my brother had some friends over from school. I think it was uh, just beginning his high school years. And they were having a euchre party in one of the upstairs unused rooms. And they had card tables set up and music going and those kinds of things. And uh, what happened was everybody was having fun until one girl said, I don't, you know, I'm going to not play for a while, just take a break and and just watch you guys. And so she stood up and somebody took her place. And 
as she was watching them play, she lifted her head up and looked into the mirror on the dresser against the wall and screamed because she saw an old man standing next to her who was not standing next to her. Yikes. She wasn't aware of. She gave out a big scream, and I remember her. I was in the kitchen at the time. She went down the stairs through the kitchen and right out the back door into the wintry snow, screaming and crying. Then my, my mother had to calm her down and drive her home, and she refused to come over again. I can remember also getting up for school on some mornings and going down to the uh, kitchen for breakfast. Stepping into the kitchen, and a couple of times I, I would see somebody standing in there that looked like they're from another time period, the 1920s or 30s, and usually a man, and the man would look at me, and I'd look at him, and, and then he would turn around, and he'd walk into the pantry and be gone. We never saw the same spirit twice, but we saw many of them quite often. Huh. And uh, yes, and uh, so I eventually, I graduated high school, moved away, and and uh, several years later, my dad passed away, and then several years after that, uh, my mother decided she wanted to uh, go visit her. She was living there alone. She wanted to go visit her mother in another city, but she had some people who were coming over to build a deck on her house, and she asked if I could come over for a couple of days and uh, Watched them build a deck and be there if they needed anything. So I said yes. And the first night there, I uh, decided to set up my video camera at a tripod at the bottom of the stairs leading up to the bedrooms. And so I did. And I just turned it on. And about midnight, I went to sleep on the couch. I got up in the morning. And I it, this is back in the VCR days. And I sure. took, took the tape out. And I stuck it in the VCR. And uh Turned the sound way up just to get some white noise and sat down to read a book. And uh, for the first 10 or 12 minutes, there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, I heard an old man's voice, just as clear as your voice I'm hearing now. Wow. Saying, hello, hello, hello. And then he recited. <laughs> very, yeah. Then he recited very slowly, Mary had a little lamb. And at the end of that, he went, ha, ha, ha. Well, that, that had a way of getting my attention. And so I, uh, I came to attention, just stared at the TV. I never saw anything on the video. But about two or three minutes later, here he comes again, different inflection to his voice and different flow of how he spoke, but it was hello, hello, hello. Mary had a little lamb and the laughter afterwards. And it wasn't identical to the first, so I knew he was doing it again. And uh, by now I'm getting some excited chills is how I want to explain it. You know, it's, it's an eerie feeling, but at the same time, it is a, um, it's a very cool experience. And uh, a few minutes later, I could hear a bunch of women talking on the tape. And I couldn't understand what they were saying because it was as though they were talking in another room with the door closed. But I listened for a while, and then it stopped, and then they started talking again. I, again, I couldn't understand what they were saying, but then a man's voice rose above theirs and very clearly said, whoever's going down there, meaning down the stairs from upstairs, whoever's going down there, stay to the left of whatever that is down there, meaning my tripod and my camera. Whoa. 
Yeah, that was pretty, pretty exciting. So I got on the phone and I called my brother, who was the local chief of police, and he was on duty and he came over to the house and and, and I, I showed him this and uh, he started getting pretty scared. I mean, this guy's 6'4", 240 and wears a big gun and everything and seen it all, but he was getting pretty scared and he, uh, and he just decided he had to leave. He couldn't handle it. Well, the next night, that very same night, I, I stayed there two nights. I decided that I was not going to sleep on the couch, but I didn't want to sleep upstairs because of all the experiences I've had through the years growing up in that house. People walking in my bedroom, walking through the door and past my bed, those kinds of things. So I decided I was going to sleep in my parents' bedroom. And so my dad was passed away, of course, but so it was my mother's bedroom. And she had solid wooden French doors that closed her bedroom off from the living room. And as soon as I laid down in the bed, I had closed the doors and I laid down in the bed, a thought hit me, you know, this just isn't normal sleeping in your mother's bed. There's an odd feeling to this, you know? And, uh, but I decided to stay there and I was reading as I always do in the evening. And I got done reading. It was well after midnight. I closed the book, put it on the nightstand, and turned out the light, and as soon as I did, all hell broke loose in that bedroom. The There was pounding and scratching on both those closed uh, wooden French doors. It, angry pacing back and forth continually at the foot of the bed. On her dresser, now it's pitch dark, I can't see anything, but on her dresser, she has all of her perfumes and cosmetic things, and it sounded like somebody was scattering them all over the place. It was a very angry feeling and sound. And I remember for only the second time in my life, truly being scared. And so uh, what I did was just kind of froze and just laying there. And then I eventually just closed my eyes. And I was, as stupid as it sounds, I fell asleep to it all still going on. Wow. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I just, I was exhausted. But it was still, I, I don't remember it stopping before I fell asleep. And in the morning, I got up and decided I was not going to stay the third night. And uh, my mother had called and she had said she was coming back early. And I said, okay, mom, here's what happened. And she said, oh, my goodness, you should have told them not to do that. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And she said, well, I've lived there for several years since your father died by myself. And I just told them after your father died, you're welcome to stay here, but leave me alone. Don't scare me. Wow. And it worked. And I said, well, mom, could you have told him, them that not to do that back when we were kids? I mean, it would have been nice if you'd have told him, leave us alone. But uh, actually, I'm glad she didn't because these things absolutely fascinate me. Now, I want to I wanna go up to about uh, the time that I got married in uh, in the 1990s, and uh, my wife had not met my mother, and my mother was living in the house alone. and And I said, "Well, let's drive over. We lived a couple hours away, and let's drive over, and, and I'll introduce you to my mother." And I was thinking to myself, "Do I tell her about this house, or don't I?" Well, it's not like things happened every day all the time, and so I decided not to tell her. We'll just have a nice little visit and. Uh, we were newlyweds, and we went to the house, and my brother and his wife were there. It was a Saturday late morning, and so it was my wife and I, my brother and his wife, and my mother, and we were seated at the kitchen table 
just drinking tea and eating some of her fabulous oatmeal cookies that she would make. Well, just outside the, the, the door of the kitchen that leads into the dining room, as soon as you step through that door, on your right is the door that goes up to the bedrooms where we had all those experiences all my life there. Well, we were sitting there just talking, a nice, bright Saturday, and uh, my wife got up and walked into, out of the kitchen into the living room to get something, and on her way back, she froze, and we all froze because the doorknob to the door going upstairs, the knob started to just slowly turn, the door started slowly opening all the way open, it came up off its hinges, it had the old style pin hitches, so it, it pin hitches, hinges. So it just came up off the pin hinges. Whoa. Came out into the room, laid itself flat, just flat horizontal, went across the room and laid it down in between an old sofa and a coffee table in the dining room that my mother had and laid it down very gently. And I remember looking at my mother and my brother. My brother was frozen with fear. My mother was just staring. And the thought going through my head was, oh, my God, I'm headed for a divorce. I never bothered to tell her about this. I looked at my wife, and she had been in the dining room and saw it happen. She looked at me, and she said, wow, was that cool. <laughs> so, I, so I knew my marriage was safe. And then uh, we just decided to, you know, to sit around and enjoy the visit. Nothing else happened. My brother and I put the door back on. But that, uh, that house was sold by my mother uh, in about, I think it was 2004 or five. She decided she was older. She wanted to move into some assisted living apartments. And so she put the house up for sale. And uh, a young couple from Ann Arbor purchased the house. And they had two small kids. And when she called me and said, Jerry, the house sold. And here are the, you know, the nice people from Ann Arbor, a young couple with children. And I said, Mom, did you tell them the house was haunted? And she said, well, no, I don't want to frighten them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mom, it's your house. You sold it. Your terms. It's cool. Well, about three weeks after the house had been sold and the people had moved in, uh, they called my mother and said that she had left some dishes in the dishwasher and they had washed them for her and packaged them up. And could she come over and get them? Well, my mother didn't drive. So she called me and said, uh, explained what was going on. And I said, well, I'll pick you up and take you over there. And so I did. It was in the evening. We got there and the people were very, very nice young couple. And they sent the kids out of the room, you know, and we were having coffee and I had baked cookies and things out. And it was really a nice visit. But I've been in ministry for 30 years and I can always tell when people are wanting to tell you something but don't know how. There's just a demeanor right. of them. Right. And so I sat there and just waiting for the shoe to drop and it wasn't dropping. And, and we talked for quite a while. And finally, my mother said, well, we'd better get going. And Jerry, can you carry these out to the car? And I said, sure. And I picked the dishes up. And all of a sudden, the young woman just blurted out. She said, before you leave, can you tell us who died in the bathroom and who all those people are upstairs? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we had to explain the whole history of the place. They lasted about two more years. They sold the house. Another couple came in. 
and they lived there about five or six years. They sold the house and another couple is in there and it's up for sale again right now as we speak. I've been thinking about maybe uh, buying the place and uh, ex- having some wonderful experiences there again. But like I said, there are so many stories I could tell you about things happening in that house. I've just been scratching the surface here. We had relatives that would come from the city to visit and drive back to the city because they wouldn't spend the night in the house. My dad loved the house. And uh, the young couple that we talked to when we picked up the dishes said that they had encountered a, a ghost upstairs of a man that looked like he was in his early 60s. He was balding. He was wearing a white T-shirt, blue jeans, and she, down to the, the last detail, described my father. Amazing. Who all, yeah. Who loved the house and always said that he was going to haunt the place for, the, for eternity. That's how much he loved it. Well, I guess he kept his promise. But that's basically what, was, what that house was like. It's still known to be very haunted. It's in my first book about haunted Michigan. And I'd love to get back in there again as soon as I can and, and check the place out. Now, uh, Reverend, what uh, an impactful story that is. Now, let me ask you, and, and you mentioned different people who maybe died and things, and it sounds like this isn't one, just a residual haunting. This sounds active. Um who do you think these spirits were, or do you think it's a, you said your dad was possibly there now, that it's just, it seems to be a collecting place for various souls? What what do you think? Well, I know my father is still there because uh, uh, one of my nephews, about two years after the, 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 the young woman had the encounter with seeing my father, uh, he was, um, my nephew was about seven years old, and uh, he had a vague memory of my father and he actually saw him again upstairs watching him and came down to tell everybody. So my dad's still there. We never saw the same ghost twice now. And we've saw several of them there upstairs, downstairs in the creepy Michigan dirt floor basement. Uh, and they were always solid and cut. They looked just like people from another time is all just a couple, you know, the house was built, I think in 1919, something like that. Uh, we have no clue who these people were. I don't think they were related to one another. It was almost, my own theory is that it was almost as though this was some kind of portal or some kind of energy that drew them to that particular house for, for whatever reason. I really don't know. And it feels so refreshing when you're a paranormal investigator to be able to answer a question by saying, I don't know. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of guts to say that I think there's always this want and need to to have all the answers. And the truth is, I don't think any of us have all the answers. Uh, just two more things I wanted to mention and then tell us where you can find your book. One thing, you reminded me of something that happened when I was a teenager. And I'll just quickly recount it here. It wasn't nearly as dramatic as yours. I counted it as like electrical interference of some type but maybe it wasn't i was a weird kid and this is in the 80s i used to go to like uh thrift stores and junk stores and go buy old eight track tapes and then i would transfer them to cassette so i you know because i i didn't really have a lot of money and i liked older recordings and uh you know you could get them for like 50 cents or 25 cents so i'd run and i got and then i'd find ones i liked and i would I would record them on cassette. That tells you how long it is. It was all a very manual process, and you would hook wires up and those things. Um, and your VCR story uh, recording reminded me. 
And I was playing this one song and uh, I recorded it and I played the cassette back and there was this voice as distinct as you are or as I am saying, listen to that little birdie sing. And I always thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, these wires are not the best wires. Maybe there was interference. But now that I think about it, kind of having knowledge of, you know, how broadcasting works and electronics work and so forth, there's no way really that would have transmitted even if you had a, uh, you know, kind of cheapo wires connecting the one deck to another cassette deck, which is the way that I did it back then. So maybe... I And I think that cassette is long, long gone. Uh, but maybe I picked up something. That just made me think. It's like, well, listen to that little birdie sing. And it's like, that was weird. But I never, even all the years I've been doing the paranormal stuff, never thought about that possibility. Well, it's certainly a possibility, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, so the, the last thing I wanted to ask you before we go, and I know callers, this is a little longer than the other call, but my goodness, what a great call it is and what a great story it is. Uh, most of the time, I, or at least this is my thought, and maybe this is the stereotype, that uh, people who are in clergy, uh, a man of the cloth uh, such as yourself, they steer clear of this kind of stuff. Um, and it seems like with your books and the story that you retold and the fact that you're thinking about buying this house again, you've kind of delved into it with both feet. What is your thinking on that? And maybe how does it differ from other, other clergy? Well, I always get asked about that by other clergy and, uh, it, they can be very judgmental about that. I simply say to them, look, we're United Methodists. John Wesley started the United Methodist denomination. John Wesley asserted back in the 1700s that he was raised in a haunted house, and they even called him Old Jeffrey. And all of his 13 brothers and sisters had experiences as well as his parents. And then I remind them also, do, do we or do we not believe in life after death? And if we say we do, then why would it be so difficult to understand that perhaps we can encounter life after death from time to time? We do believe in resurrection after all. So uh, that's the best I can do because a lot of people, they worship the Bibles and the Bible instead of giving all their worship to God. I got to be careful saying this. And so they will become judgmental as they read a text that's, well, almost about 2,000 years old from a different culture that didn't understand these things. And then they'll pass judgment on what's going on around us today. And I don't think that's an authentic way to be looking at things. Well, I really appreciate your time today and sharing this great story. Uh, where can people find uh, the Haunted Michigan books? You can get them at Amazon. You can order them direct from Thunder Bay Press in uh, Birch Run, Michigan. Uh, you can get them at any uh, any bookstore in Michigan. I don't know if they have them out of state, but my fourth book that I'm working on right now, I'm including places in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Wisconsin. So if any listeners have stories that they want to tell me uh, that I can check out with them, I'm doing another book, and I'm always open to doing some investigations. I'm on my way to Gettysburg tomorrow to investigate the Farnsworth house by myself. Excellent. And uh, where would they get in touch with you to do that, to submit stories and so forth? Yeah, their best way to get in touch with me is to contact um, 
Thunder Bay Press in Birch Run, Michigan. I'm a little reluctant to give out my phone number. No, or I wouldn't email. do that. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd I wouldn't do that, do but that. they can get in touch through the publisher. Very good. Reverend Gerald Hunter, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this great campfire story. Well, thank you for having me, Jim, and you take care. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and joining us throughout 2021. And again, Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you have a great 2022. Lots of things planned for 2022. I'm hoping to re-engage with YouTube and do some spooky stories over there. Of course, we have Unpleasant Dreams continuing. That's the podcast for my daughter, Cassandra Harold written by Maddie Hilker, and I hope that you check that out if you've not had a chance over these holidays. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and I think if you haven't listened to it, you'll really enjoy it. And uh, at the first of the year here, we're going to have uh, a show on that about the chupacabra, of all things. And uh, we just thank you for supporting us in everything we do. Again, Happy New Year. Be safe out there. Have a good time, but be safe. And as always, Stay spooky. We'll talk to you in 2022. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to Jim Harold's Campfire. Tune in again next time for more stories of ordinary people who have experienced extraordinary things.